This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Here you are. BPM's high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Hi, I'm Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These, a show about messy coalitions and difficult conversations. Today's conversation I thought was going to be difficult. It turned out to be both remarkably easy and incredibly productive. Today's show is all about Hillary Clinton. I had the idea to do it um, out of a rather selfish impulse, which is that I have called myself in the past a Hillary skeptic. I think I have been in the past a Hillary critic. I voted for her. I was happy to vote for her. But even since the election, as we've continued to re-litigate and re-litigate and re-litigate, I have found myself, I don't even know how to put it. I don't know what to say about her. I do feel like I've had to have a position about her and I don't know what it is anymore or I didn't know what it is. I decided to do this episode all about her so that maybe I'd figure it out. And we do have a bonus episode coming up that includes interviews with Hillary fans online to get their books signed, uh, Simone Sanders from the Sanders campaign to talk about what she thinks about Hillary Clinton, and a conversation with my best friend in the world who happened to work for Hillary Clinton. And those conversations were all productive and all useful, but it turns out all I really needed to do was talk to Rebecca Traster for an hour. You probably are familiar with her work. She is a writer at large for New York Magazine and the author of the book, All the Single Ladies. She has written about Hillary Clinton, I think we could safely say for a decade, if not longer. And our conversation just really helped me. Um, I hope it helps you. If you have complicated feelings about Hillary, if you don't have complicated feelings about Hillary, if you wonder why you feel about her the way you do, that is, if you wonder what are the historical forces at work in your own thinking about this woman, one of the most important women in American history, I think it's safe to say, this conversation is for you. Coming right up. If you think you might have a negative reaction to the things we're talking about, you might want to have a couple of numbers on hand. One of them is for the National Sexual Assault Hotline, and that number is 800-656-4673, which stands for HOPE. So that's 800-656-HOPE. That is for the Rape, Abuse, Incest National Network. And they also have an anonymous online chat that you can uh, log on to if you would like. And that is at online.rain with two ends.org. And also, I love the crisis text line, which is 741-741. You can text almost anything to that, and they will hook you up with someone who can talk you through whatever you're going through 
What I like about that especially is they don't ask you uh, to think of what you're going through as an emergency. Is if you're in emotional pain or if you're experiencing anxiety and you don't know what to do, they want to get you help before you reach a true crisis. So don't hesitate to get in touch with them. I'm going to start by saying that we were here to talk about Hillary, but um, you came into the studio and the first thing out of your mouth was something along those lines of, I'm sorry, I'm a little frazzled. Uh, I've been in rape wonderland. Yeah. Which, which is, yeah, which is, which is too <laughs> glib, which is, was too glib a comment on my part to describe just being, um, and so I laugh only right. because no, I know, I know. I know exactly yes. what you're talking about. Right. And that's the that's actually the new Miramax right. ride. That's what that is. Oh, yes. That's so dark. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if you're I mean, the reason that I'm here to talk about Hillary is because my job is writing about women and politics and power and the public sphere. And uh because that is my beat, um I have been writing a lot in recent weeks about um, sexual harassment and sexual assault, also not unrelated to um, last year's election that got us President Donald Trump instead of President Hillary Clinton. Um, but it really is sort of, it, it's like choking. You know, it's, it's, it's the, the, the smoke is so thick everywhere. You can't, on my way in, I'm reading about Roy Moore, mm-hmm. who is the Republican Senate candidate in Alabama, who is alleged now to have um, made sexual advances on women, underage women. Uh, there were four, I believe, yes, people coming forward. The youngest is 14. And uh, 30 people uh, on the record as sources yes. for the story. Yeah, it seems like a pretty solid story. And the question that I was asking myself, as, and this is very related to the election of Donald Trump, um, and I think also to the rage that got us to this moment in the news cycle where we're actually— printing and reading stories about sexual harassment and assault and the ubiquity of that assault. Um, The question I'm asking myself as I read about Roy Moore is, yeah, well, is he going to get elected anyway? Because our last model for this was he got elected anyway. And I think that the rage of that, that you can do the thing and report the story and get the 30 sources, that you can be one of the women who tells their story. And and I was very interested in reading the Washington Post story about Roy Moore, that they took a lot of pains to get the women who were coming forth with their accusations to describe themselves. They're not Democrats. They're not affiliate. They are Republican voters. Trump, the, the woman who's the core of the story, um, is a Trump voter. Um, that this was not— Which is, by the way, its own kind of— right. Mind fuck, I, right? But yes, yeah. Um, but that this wasn't partisan. It's not partisan. Yeah. It's not ideologically motivated. It was reporters coming to them, not them coming to reporters. Um, and all of that can be true. And they're doing something very brave because, as we know, with all the harassment stories we're talking about, in addition to the sort of fears about speaking out and telling your story and telling painful, recounting painful, intimate things about which women are taught to feel tremendous shame. There's also the fear of retaliation, that you're going to be mocked, that you're going to be seen as the aggressor, that you're going to, all these things that really happen, not to mention sort of threaten that somebody's going to publish your sexual history to try to discredit you, that somebody's going to publish nude photos of you, that, you know, all that stuff is very much up in the air for all these people. And all of these people, when we talk about the people who told their stories about Donald Trump, groping them, kissing them against their will, sexually assaulting them, that he himself was caught on tape 
bragging about the pleasures of being able to just grab women against their will. Um, And it didn't matter. It didn't matter. He's the president. He got the job. And it didn't even matter, by the way, that three million more people voted for his opponent. I mean, which is the other sort of, God, it just, I mean, the sort of Sisyphean feeling about this is like, you can even do the thing, right? And I know electorally, we didn't do the thing. And there are a million reasons why and all of that. But sort of democratically, small d democratically, we did the thing. We voted for his opponent. And it didn't matter. He still has the job. And so it's very hard. And and when I read about Roy Moore, there's a, I mean, I'm going to say 75 to 95% of me is like, he's going to get the job. He's going to get the job. I have like two, so there's kind of two directions I want to take the conversation. One is there's a part of me that just wants to talk about the as I call it, like the daily insult that Donald Trump is, right, to all of us that have ever experienced any kind of harassment or assault, men or women, no matter where you identify, if you've been groped, uh, touched, punched, whatever. And then there's a part of me, and I, I may as well just get this off at the top, which is that what do you think would have happened if we had had this mindset about sexual assault and sexual harassment um, during Bill Clinton's election. I think about this all the time. I've been thinking so much about Bill Clinton in the past few weeks. Yeah. Um, well, you know, we should have because it was right after Anita Hill. So so in the timeline of how we talk about sexual assault and I guess and I, want identify, I want to identify the we here as like women uh, in newsrooms, women mm-hmm. uh, connecting with each other women on social media, like this, that, not like the society at large, which I think is still, right, <laughs> right, you know, kind of f- figuring it out. But there's a lot of progressive women now who support each other in speaking out. And we have a culture that's nascent culture of, of that, of, right. of supporting that, right. that maybe didn't. It certainly didn't, didn't exist. exist, but, but it, it had been triggered. I mean, mm-hmm. this is the, this is the mind fuck of all of this. And I think, um, you know, after the stories about Weinstein came out and then there have been a lot of stories about men in left media, mm-hmm. um, which, of course, as anybody who's ever worked in progressive anything can tell you, activism media um, can tell you that though it is a world— This is not a partisan this is, issue. This is not a partisan <laughs> yeah. issue. But And, in fact, the mismatch is especially painful. And I think that plays into the um, the defenses that happened of Bill Clinton in that moment. There was a kind of—like, if you are— First of all, if you are theoretically a member of a progressive sphere, a progressive project, as a politician, as an activist, as a as a publisher, the idea is that your progressivism is supposed to entail a pursuit of um, increased possibility and opportunity and equality for all kinds of people, including, of course, women. And then the idea that there's this disconnect between how you actually treat women, how, how you abuse um, what is still fundamentally a patriarchal power structure from which men benefit in this country, um, that that there's a mismatch. And of course, it's not totally a mismatch because it's always, quote unquote, women's issues that are jettisoned first in the progressive project. It's always, I mean, we just had this conversation over the past year around, you know, could we have a exciting new left progressive coalition that didn't support uh, abortion rights and and reproductive autonomy? Like, it's the first thing that gets traded away. That happened in the healthcare horse trading, um, you know, in the first Obama administration when we had a supermajority. We were like, hey, but maybe we should still get do away with abortion, right? So, So, um, and part of what was happening with Bill Clinton after Anita Hill came forward and gave her testimony about her experiences with Clarence Thomas, I think we forget. And and by the way, I should say, 
some of this is is memory for me. I was in high school when this happened. Um, I was in. I was in college. I actually, uh, Orrin Hatch came to speak at my college mm. during this. Mm. And this is the little baby punk rock activist that I was. We did street theater mm. <laughs> in front of it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which I, only time in my life I've done it. I swear I won't do it again. <laughs> um, and then uh, the school that I went to disallowed signs um, in classrooms, I think is an artifact from, there'd been a student takeover of administration buildings in the sixties. So right. all these, they had all these um, rules about what kind of activism and protest you could do. So the largest piece of paper you could bring into a classroom was like a legal sized mm. pad. Mm-hmm. So we printed out, you know, uh, dozens, I guess, hundreds probably of a piece of paper that just said, I believe Anita. Oh, that's. And then we went and sat down and just in silently like held our signs I was very proud. God, well, you covered yourself with more glory than I did because I was a— I was, <laughs> Well, you were in high school, I guess. I was in 10th grade, and actually I watched the hearings with my very conservative Republican grandparents. I happened to mm-hmm. be up in there on the farm they lived on in northern Maine and watched it on the small—and and they were like, she's lying. She, and I was just—I mean, I didn't—I I believed her, but there wasn't, there wasn't even a space for conversation. Mm-hmm. I was just sitting in the kitchen with my nana— while she was telling me that this woman was a, you know, a lying trollop or whatever. And, but I, I did believe, you know. Well, I should also point, the reason that I'm proud of that story is that it was actually an outlier thing to do. Yeah, yeah. Like it, it was, we were not, we were very, considered very fringe, the group. It was a queer university that did it. Um, uh, and for not all, anyone who I wanted to be a part of it could be a part of it. And it was like the activist core. Um, and we were considered pretty fringy. For yeah. doing that. Well, like, while the, while this was going on, one of the things to remember, and this also gets back to the sort of the ugly heart of, of some of our left-wing, liberal, progressive heroes, what was happening during those th- that Anita Hill testimony? The Senate Judiciary Committee, all Joe white Biden. guys, was led by Joe Biden. And the person who was the great liberal lion, who should have been up there giving space or defense to Anita Hill as she told her very painful story— was a man named Ted Kennedy, our great progressive hero. And in addition to his public and questionable past with women, he, at that very moment, was part of a rape trial that was ongoing of his nephew in Palm Beach. William Kennedy Smith was on trial at the same time that Anita Hill was testifying. Ted Kennedy's nephew, William Kennedy Smith, is on trial for rape, a night that began with him drinking with Uncle Ted. Like, Ted Kennedy had been present on the night that his nephew had been accused of rape. And that was ongoing. And sort of everybody can agree retrospectively that probably that had a lot to do with why he sat there silent as Anita Hill was sort of ritually abused and insulted by a Senate Judiciary Committee that was led by a Democrat. Highly encourage people to go back and look at this. It is, I even, so I even watched it and believed her and was doing activism around this and it still is appalling to me like it's an amazing there's a good documentary about it which I'm, Anita it was released it, like four or five years ago right and there's also a book that I'm going to blank on the name on but Jane Mayer and yes. Del Abramson wrote yes. it Strange Justice Strange Justice it's a, that is like a page turner it's an I incredible book. highly recommend it and it's, she herself contributed she edited and contributed to a set of essays Ooh, I'm not going to remember the name of it but um have it at home. Uh, Anita Hill has done incredible writing and is doing writing this week, in fact, on sexual harassment. So, but after, and the the women in the House, at that point, there were so few women in Congress. We also forget, this wasn't long ago. It was less than 25 years ago. And, or no, it was 26. 
six oh. years ago. Okay. <laughs> yes, yes, right. it was. <laughs> it was. It was 26 years ago. Just kidding. It was a really long time ago. It was super old. But, um, but uh, many of the lawmakers who were present are still, you know, mm-hmm. in our political scene today. The women from the House actually had to storm up the steps. There's a very famous photograph of the women, including um, Eleanor Holmes Norton, uh, Patricia Schroeder, women in the House to interrupt the Senate judiciary. And they their version of the story is Joe Biden was like, go away. And they were like, no, you have to get this woman to testify. Um, so this has been very hard fought for her even to be able to testify. Then she testified. There were women who were willing to back her up. Joe Biden did not call them to testify. Clarence Thomas is confirmed to the Supreme Court. I view this as like one of the turning points in in political history. And I think we're going to go back to it again and again. We're going back to it as far as sexual harassment, as far as women running for office. In the wake of that, in the wake of her treatment, your fringe activism was fringy, but there was so much anger from women that bubbled up in the wake of Anita Hill not being believed and being treated so dismissively by this all-white male Senate judiciary. First of all, there was something about her not getting it, which maybe is a theme here in a way, about her not getting it, meaning her not being believed and right. and uh, Clarence Thomas being confirmed, that was more bitter than the fight itself. And I sort of feel that way. This is maybe another, we'll, we'll leave that as a touchstone for talking about Hillary. Well, I think, I, I, I'd love, let's finish that yeah. comparison right now, because I've said, this is something I think I've written. I view those moments as like real parallel echoes of each other. Because yes, it's a loss. It is a material loss with long-term negative consequences. Clarence Thomas serving on the Supreme Court gets us to the Voting Rights Act. You guys Act. don't get to see me like shaking right. my head and being sad, but yeah. It, Clarence Thomas is part of gutting the Voting Rights Act, which enables the election of Donald Trump, right? There's, there's even a direct line you can draw in terms of negative consequences. It is a massive long-term loss. But the rage that it inspires, the backlash of fury, the way that it makes clear the inequities, both gendered and racial, that were still very much in play in politics, in the public sphere, creates a couple of things. First of all, more r- women run for office in 1992, the year after. That's where the year 91. of the woman. It was the year of the woman. Four women, including the first- Carol Mosley Braun. First African-American woman ever elected to the Senate. And she remained the only one until this fall when Kamala Harris was elected. Yeah. I remember crying in the school library. When um, she won? The, I, was, I remember I was in the Harper Library studying, and uh, it was like finals week. And I remember, I'm getting teary now. Like, it was, it was a moment. Yeah. It was a moment. And it was, you're right, it was a direct response. A direct response. Those women will tell you, Patty Murray, yeah. who's still in the Senate, will tell you she was mad about Anita Hill and was like, why doesn't anybody who look like me, why wasn't anybody on the Senate Judiciary Committee? Yeah. A lot of those women are running and they're direct about it. They're furious about Anita Hill. And again, not exactly just about the harassment, but about the loss. The, the, right, the loss and how she was treated, right? The response was what was activating. The second thing is that sexual harassment comes into the public lexicon as like mm-hmm. not just a weird, quirky behavior, and that's how men are, and, and what do you expect if you're going to go into offices, ladies? But as like a harm, an economic harm done to women as a class, something that, that renders them um, unequal in workplaces, that, right. that disadvantages them. And so there's a and it's something that can be pervasive and not necessarily a, um, predatory in a way that people had not yet had not recognized. Right, predatory not in just like I'm trying to get a date with you. I think that's the kind of sexual harassment that people still kind of have in their head as 
Right. The, the kind that counts. Right. Exactly. You know, yes. is oh, that you have to date right. me or else. And that's the only kind of sexual harassment that exists. The sexual harassment of Anita Hill was it's more pervasive, like weird, hostile workplace is the phrase that we now have. Right. Right. Yeah. And so, but then what happens that next year? 92. Year of the woman. Right. What if hiring could be easier, more streamlined, and less time-consuming? So even when you're busy, you could still be smart about the way you hire. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. You can rest easy knowing that your job is being seen by the right candidates. Then, ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting, so you receive the best possible matches. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidate finding you. It finds them. You can even get a head start on the interview process by adding screening questions to your job post and help identify the most qualified candidates. So you don't have to waste time sorting through a stack of resumes to find the perfect fit. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. One day. And the easy-to-use ZipRecruiter dashboard lets you manage your hiring process from start to finish all in one place. ZipRecruiter, it is the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs to ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com friends. That's ZipRecruiter.com friends. One more time. Try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. So ironically, the moan of the deepest ironies mm-hmm. that history has to offer us besides the one we're living through right now. Right. The year of the woman is also the year that Bill Clinton is elected. Right. Which there are things that match. Okay. There are things that match. So in the moment, what we know is that there is a woman who is making allegations that he was unfaithful about her. And Jennifer I, I, Flowers. Right. And that is a public thing during his campaign, and everybody knows about it. I don't believe that at that point there's any allegation that it was non-consensual. It was an affair. He's claiming they have to go on. Hillary has to do the, like, I stand by my man. I'm not, like— It was all—it was infidelity, and she (laughs) was— I believe if tabloid reporting started to make its way into mainstream political stories that way. Right. And you're right. It was it was consensual, and it was a, he cheated. That right. Was the, he cheated. That was what we knew about this guy. Yeah. Here are the other things we knew about this guy. He had a wife who, at that point, was probably the most impressive. I mean, by you know, first lady, and she was a feminist heroine already from the start. Yes. She was the first first lady with a postgraduate degree, the first first lady to have maintained a career outside of her husband's political career. He sold them as a two-for-one presidency. She had as many qualifications as he did. And she was viewed, which will be hilarious to some listeners now, as a kind of left-wing radical pull on his administration. She was viewed as this. The fact that she kept her name, the fact Uh that she worked for the Children's Defense Fund, which I thought, that was radical, which is actually was sort of. It was radical. It is a radical place. It's still radical today, I gotta tell you. still radical, but uh, the Children's uh, Defense Fund, um, I'm trying to remember the other uh, signature thing. Not only did she keep her name, but she had a job and a job that she was proud of. Well, and the big 
controversy during the campaign was that at some point she was asked about Jerry Brown, his one of his opponents had made an allegation that there was improper use of funds around her job, her her job as a lawyer and a and a very successful one. And uh, she said, well, I didn't stay home and bake cookies. I suppose I could have stayed home right. and had teas and baked cookies. Right. Now, she also said a follow-up thing. I was, We always get that far, and everybody flipped the fuck out. Like, she had just told American mothers that they were healthy. To go fuck themselves. Like, yes, yeah, right. No. Yeah. And, uh, in fact, the follow-up to that, like, they st- everybody freaked out, like, in the diner where she was talking. It was like, rah, sirens. And mm-hmm. then everybody calmed down, and then she continued— and and said, look, I've always my work has always been toward um, helping women make any choice that's right for them, including staying home with their family, including going to work. Like she actually her her immediate follow up. She's such a bad politician. I know. <laughs> I know. This is like a theme. And, like, the, and the irony is, but here's one of the ironies for me about her and the bad pol- politicking is that sometimes what she she just says what she thinks. Like yeah. she obviously meant like the whole thing about her being inauthentic. I'm like, you guys, there's literally her never problem. been a more authentic person in the world than Hillary Rodham. I, I like agree. ever. And also, I just finished reading her book, which I, there was only one chapter I wanted to th- throw against the wall. But um, for the most part, it's, it's— Was it the Russia one? Uh, no, it's when she comes out for universal basic income and is like, oh, but I didn't propose that because oh, we yeah. couldn't make the numbers work. And she was like, we, and then she has the same, in the same, literal same page, she says, Democrats need to be not afraid of big ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I know, I know. No. I was on a plane or else I would have thrown it very hard. Uh, but yeah, she's but, like, but, but all these, so she, she talks about some of her gaffes during the campaign. And the thing is, and she always says I was taken out of context or I should have said it more clearly, but it's, but you want to argue with her. No, you meant that. Right. You actually meant that. Right. Like when you said coal mine, you're going to put coal miners out of work. That's that's true. Right. Like you you could you I know how. Wait, you should have said it differently. You should have said it differently, <laughs> right. but you weren't taken out of context. You you want to put uh, coal miners out of work. No, I know. This is this is the horrible <laughs> irony about Hillary. She has been so herself and so yeah, I would agree with you. This is I have not seen the frame t- this way, but I totally agree with from you. From the time if you go back and read her commencement speech, which is radical by the way, which is totally radical and weird and loopy and yeah. all of that, and. If you read the letters that she wrote to her friends when she was in college, she has always been this lady. It's just that America hasn't liked her. And so, and doesn't really fundamentally like a person who talks that bluntly and doesn't put it in better context and isn't slicker in a lot of ways. And then... And I actually totally, I didn't see, I think one of the reasons I'm a Hillary skeptic Mm -hmm. is that I actually completely identify with her. Like I completely see myself in a lot of her, yes. a lot of her habits, which is that I don't know when to shut up yeah. a lot of the times. Like I often um, assume that people would like to be corrected if mm-hmm. they're wrong. <laughs> yeah, like I, like yeah. I, I don't know this about yeah. her, yeah. but I bet she corrects people's pronunciation of things, which is something <laughs> that I do. When I was in rehab, uh-huh. that came up in like group therapy. Oh no, that means- because people were like, Anna corrects people's how they say things. Uh-huh. Like, and that makes me feel less than, yeah. with less than's a big, like, rehab thing, right. so. And you don't apologize nope. for being smart or for having I know, opinions. Well. And, right. But I mean, like, this is. But I, so I get, I get why she right. is the person that she is. And I also would never run for president. Right. But let's go back and talk about Bill some more. So he comes to Washington. He's the president. He has this wife who many feminists admire. The very people who are driving home the conversation about sexual harassment mm-hmm. in a broader in a yeah. broader sense, like, are 
lionizing his wife. Okay, for good reason. And she's heading up healthcare. You know, that went poorly, but there was a lot of excitement about the fact that she was going to do it. And um, scarred her. That's such a terrible thing, but it's it's really, I mean, again, she. I do remember this part. The initial proposals, this idea we're going to have healthcare for everyone. I mean, well, going back and reading about what happened with healthcare is like total Rashomon. Like everybody yeah. tells you a different story about what her role was, what she was fighting for, how involved she was. Maybe it was all these other people. Maybe it was Ira Magazine or maybe it was Hillary. You can't get a straight story if you weren't actually in the room. And I, even the people who are in the rooms tell you different stories. Yeah. But one of the versions of the story is that, again, an irony, um, that she was pushing for universal and pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and that it wouldn't, it wasn't going to fly and it turned out to be disastrous. Yes. Okay. Anyway. But she's a, she's she's a feminist doing, icon. We, she's I, a feminist I keep icon. interrupting you, but this and is great. Bill is, I mean, it's been at that point years of conservative, uh, years of damaging and, and also the years in which the Republican Party has aligned with a religious right, mm -hmm. which is particularly bad for feminists because you've seen the ramping up of a war on reproductive rights. Bill Clinton is the president. He is a strongly pro-choice president. He appoints women. He appoints Ruth Bader Ginsburg to the Supreme Court. He, in all these ways, is not only a friend to feminists, but such a relief after years of having had these Republicans in office. And then it turns out he has had a relationship with an intern. Do you remember how old Monica Lewinsky was? I believe she was 21. Yeah, I think so. About the age of his daughter, just yeah. a couple years older than his daughter, while in the White House. An intern. An intern. Like, let's like, right. I, the people I think sometimes forget just how dramatic this power differential, <laughs> like by any definition, this was not just inappropriate, not just infidelity, but an abuse of power. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And that's the thing that's clear in my mind. And I think has been for a long time that it was because there was a lot of fighting about it because, because the look, liberals and in fact, feminists defended him. They defended him in public. They defended him in big ways. And so there was a conversation about it at the time. Um, and defended in ugly ways, too. Oh, yeah. By, by, in part, part of the conversation was about Monica Lewinsky's participation in this and the fact that by her reckoning and, I mean, his, he didn't, the degree to which he ever even told the story is negligible. Right. But so mostly we have her account of it. And in her account, she was, in fact, in the, the, an enthusiastic participant, and she approached him first. And right. so that gave ammunition to feminists who wanted to defend Bill to say this was not coerced. This was not. There's even a conversation between Hillary Clinton and her friend Diane Blair, who she. Do, do you know about this? There's. She was. I, I know. Having conversations that she knew that her friend, I think it was Diane Blair she knew her friend was writing down as sort of a public record of her right. reaction. It wasn't, they were private conversations. They were not for public dissemination, but this friend. But she kept a diary. That's, she kept a diary. But the conversation I'm thinking of is one in which I believe the friend is writing down what Hillary is saying about this as it is unfolding. And even Hillary takes care to say um, it was not a coercive relationship. Like she, she at least, and I, I mean, I think about that all the time. She at least was, I, saying, I've thought about this right. and I've investigated it and it was not, he didn't coerce her. But feminists, public feminists, um, including Gloria Steinem, who defended 
Bill Clinton and the New York Times, tried to make this distinction. And there are distinctions to be made. Of course, there are distinctions to be made between all of these cases. And Monica Lewinsky herself, to this day, I believe, when she writes about it, says it was a consensual relationship. But what it also was, and that we didn't get to, and that makes it very different from what Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas were talking about. I'm nodding. Here I'm nodding. (laughs) But it is a grotesque abuse of power. And we didn't have the vocabulary around that at that point. And we didn't have a feminist commentariat. We didn't have a feminist media that was at that point empowered and anxious to make those distinctions. And I actually want to point out, I did a story um, at some point during this, and I don't remember if it was for my college paper or for a class, but I went to the University of Chicago Law School uh, and talked to this avant-garde professor who was writing law articles uh, wanting to institute some kind of, you know, legal distinction about a abusive power relationships, that any relationship between a superior and and their subordinate, uh, beyond a, I don't think, I think he was saying like, anytime it's a superior and a subordinate, that should be considered sexual harassment because right. the, because that person could get fired. Right. Because that person could suffer if the Absolutely. relationship is broken off. Absolutely. But that was considered, again, like, but he was like out there. <laughs> You know, right, with this right, idea. Right. No, no, no. That was a completely out there yeah. idea at the time. But it shouldn't have been. It yeah. shouldn't have been. But we weren't there in the public mm-hmm. conversation. Then in the course of the Star investigation, which is what digs up, and, and it is, it's also true that in that case, it is totally ideologically motivated. Mm-hmm. It is Republicans looking to take down Bill Clinton. Yeah. Right? That's the context in which all this stuff is dug up. There are also, Republicans also, and I, this is the part I can't remember, about at what point Juanita Broderick's claims become public because there is a woman named Juanita Broderick who claims that Bill Clinton raped her. Yes. And, uh, there's a whole, she tells a very vivid story about it. Um, I don't remember when the timing is either, but yes, it is in the whole Clinton conspiracy theory, uh, heated, um, hothouse, uh, heated hothouse. Right. There's a, there is a, the, the right is doing its own kind of alternative journalism, let's say, during this time. Mm-hmm. Some, and they, they're doing uh, Vince Foster investigations. Right. And they're also, uh, you know, they ran cocaine. The Clintons ran cocaine right. in Arkansas. There's this right. whole cottage industry. Right. And a lot of it is in is horseshit. Right. A lot of it is totally manufactured horseshit. Like, absolute yep. fiction. Yep. Like, and that's true, too. This is all these factors that are making this— I, I, I was a little older than you are, and I remember all this, yes. Like, there, you were, you had they, them um, being running coke in Arkansas and having— Killed Ben you know, Killed Ben Foster. And then also you have this story about Juanita Broderick that is so lurid. Mm-hmm. Those of us—and I was one—I I admit, like, I was really confused— I remain confused because um, I also was like a pro, you know, pro-choice, and I, 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 I had problems with the Clintons, but they were mainly about like policy and mm-hmm, stuff. And too. I recognized that they were basically my ally mm-hmm. and all these different things. We didn't. We the phrase. This is actually kind of an amazing thing to think that when we when we did a little signs that said "I believe Anita," that was just what it was. I believe Anita. The phrase "believe women" mm-hmm. did not exist. Right as a popular conception. Right. So there wasn't this, like, feeling of, like, I should believe this person. Right. You know? And the thing that happens in the wake of this, which I've thought about a lot even before this last election So when Juanita Verdict gets dismissed by gets most dismissed. liberals as part of the, the hothouse conspiracy theory right. factory. Right. And there are reasons, right? Like, this is, I, I go back and, and she forth. does go I to conservatives. So, she like, goes to conservatives. It's, it's the Juanita Broderick story 
is a really complicated one. Actually, Katie Baker wrote a great piece about Juanita Broderick last year mm-hmm. that I recommend people go and read because it is – it's a very confusing territory. When I say she goes to conservatives, I mean like she allies herself yes. with that yes. part of the political spectrum and that kind of uh, – the the conspiracy theory factory denizens. Right. She, she does not try to align herself. She doesn't present herself as – anything but someone who is actively trying to bring down Clinton. And to be clear, there are other women. There's Paula Jones. There are other women who make claims about Bill Clinton, not rape claims in those cases, but harassment claims or or assault claims. Um, Some of them are, are, I think, plausibly discredited at the time. Okay? Um, So this whole stew of of shit happens. (laughs) And one of the things that comes out of this— is that Bill Clinton sails out of office. He is, I mean, he look, he faces impeachment. He has to do a lot of, but he comes out of, he doesn't have to step down. He is not convicted of anything. He not only, I mean, it, it derails, and this is bad for progressives, bad for liberals. It wholly derails his second term. It ruins Monica Lewinsky's life. It ruins Monica Lewinsky's life. It also there's there's some confusing things about what it does for Hillary Clinton's life. Yes, this is probably the nut of it right here. Right. Yes. <laughs> because on the one hand, she sticks with him, okay? And and I've also, I've had to think about this a lot in my writing about her. Like, in general, I don't believe that wives should be handed the checks for their husband's misbehavior, like as a general rule, unless they participated in the misbehavior, obviously, Right. Um, it was one of my qualms last year when, for example, Donald Trump brings the group of women to the debate he's having with Hillary Clinton, who is the candidate for the presidency. And I was like, are you kidding? You are, she is going to, she's going to answer. Like, all right, we are now at a place where we can revisit Bill Clinton's behavior with a new set of lenses and comprehension about power dynamics and gender dynamics that are going to reveal him to be a lot more malevolent and his actions a lot more malicious than we had understood at the time. But you're the one doing it. it. (laughs) We're going to do it. A, Donald Trump, you're the one doing it. And B, the person who's going to pay for it is Hillary? Yeah. Are you kidding me? No, that is not. Because I think this happens very often. What is also true is that she doesn't leave him, which, first of all, discredits her with a lot of feminists who'd loved her. There, I still talk to people today. I had a conversation on Monday with a really respected, really smart friend who actually thinks the world of Hillary politically in a lot of ways, but is like, I just don't understand why she didn't leave him. Okay? So it hurts her with certain feminists, but her approval ratings skyrocket with the general population. She's going to run for Senate in New York. And this woman who's been this radical lightning rod for all these years, who's been a very controversial figure, the idea of her running for office would have been totally implausible at some points in the Clinton administration because she was so unliked. She was so toxic, toxic caricatured as this feminazi bitch, castrating, you know, yeah. shillery, whatever. Killery. Killery, right, right. <laughs> Vince Foster murderer, all these horrible yeah. things. But because she stays with him, and the question is, I mean, there, there are lots of questions. Is it because she stays with him or is it because she's humiliated? Because there's also the pleasure in she's sexually humiliated by this because her husband has wandered, right? So she, in some ways, it's a, it's a morality play for conservatives who don't believe that women like Hillary should have been working outside the house and should have been wielding all this power. See, your husband's going to cheat on you because, and, it's, and it kind of brings her down several notches in a way 
then it makes her sympathetic. We are, we are conditioned, all of us, to some degree, to feel more warmly toward vulnerable women than we do about threatening women. She becomes vulnerable, humiliated. People like her more. They... I also wonder, I mean, the I, I, it's such an interesting counterfactual about whether or not she would have been able to run for Senate had she left him. Because there's a part of me that wonders there's like a middle option about why her popularity soared then, mm-hmm. which is that she's a survivor. Right. That stay with him or leave, she just, she is has her eyes on her own prize. Well, and it's, <laughs> she's going to have her life. I've been thinking about this with regard to anger. I'm writing this book about women, anger, and politics. Mm. And I've been thinking about Eleanor Roosevelt. And, you know, there's one telling of Eleanor Roosevelt's <laughs> life <laughs> in which she's going to be the helpmate. I mean, mm-hmm. and I may, I'm like going to pervert this because I haven't gone back and reread my Blanche Wiesen Cook and everything. <laughs> but um, popular understanding history. Popular understanding of history is Eleanor's going to be the sort of supportive helpmate. And then her husband's infidelity, chronic infidelity and bad behavior becomes known to her. And that her reaction is basically a kind of fury that's like, fine, I'll stay married to you, but I'm going to make my own fucking life. And that this is part of the stuff out of which Eleanor Roosevelt's independent engagement with the world, and at that point, historic engagement with the world is born, is out of anger at Franklin in part. And like, fuck you, I was going to do this. Like, I was going to play one kind of role. But I'm not going to sit here. What, you know, the, the, so that's that's one version of the Eleanor Roosevelt trajectory. And I think about it sometimes with that Hillary version, too. I mean, when they when they got together, there's now a sort of revisionist history that both of them swear is true, that when they first fell in love, Bill was like, no, you should run for office. You should run for office. There were lots of women when she was just out of law school who believed that Hillary Clinton should have become a politician in her own right when she was Hillary Rodham. And she she made the choice to go to Arkansas and put her political career Where she was apparently miserable. His. Yes, of course she like, was of course, I mean, <laughs> of course she was, but that's just another interesting part of the story. One of the most, the book, uh, what happened is not very revealing at all, except there are just a few nuggets in it that are both well-written and um, a little cracks. I mean, I don't want to use it pejoratively, but like there are just sort of flashes of, yeah. of, 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 of Again, I don't want to say humanity, but like some deeper level of her that doesn't usually get displayed. One of them is actually this lovely sentence that she says about Chelsea, about how uh, she didn't realize she wanted a girl. And she says, it was a secret so secret I didn't know myself. Mm. And that actually like, makes that. me yeah. like like tear up a little bit. What a lovely way to say it. Right? right. Right. And then I can't remember the exact way she says it about, oh, um, her writing about Bill, sort of uh, stuff she said before, my best friend, my partner, and all that. Um, but when she's talking about his speech at the convention and how it was about their relationship, mm. which I do remember kind of rolling my eyes at, but he's such a, he's so yeah, good. I know. He's so, so, good. Good. so good. You know, like I remember kind of get carried away with it too. And she says um, how overwhelming, how overwhelmed with emotion she was. And it was like having a love letter read out loud. Mm. And that's, I was like, yeah, you know what? I get it. So then that moment, I was like, I see why I see. I am one of those who really believes they love each other. And I, in that sentence to me, like for some reason, there's something about that moment where I'm like, I get it. Yeah. I I understand. I mean, I, you know, love is complicated. Love is complicated. And you know what? Here's the other thing. And this is crucial to understanding anything about Hillary. And this is not, none of what, none of what we're talking about 
it doesn't even fall in a spectrum of like excusing or defending. It's just trying to contextualize. So much of what I feel like I do when I write about women in politics or individual women, especially somebody like Hillary, is try to put this stuff in some context because we are in a world that is changing quickly and has changed quickly recently. And one of the most important things to understand about Hillary Rodham Clinton is that she was born in one era of possibility and she ran for president in a totally different world. And it is impossible to understand her in a contemporary context without considering the world in which she was born, which you know, even for a woman of and her that she racial, still operates in, it's so clear that she still operates within uh, she, that yes frame. And 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 it's hard to break how you're yeah, raised. Sure, I mean, sure, sure. So she and and even for a middle class, white, expensively educated woman, that the era she's born in the 1940s, it is in the midst of a post-war backlash. Not not just sort of post-war Norman Rockwell creation of the white middle class. It is also a feminist backlash at that moment. We never talk about that. But there had been this enormous expansion of possibility for women and for people of color. Thank you, Eleanor Roosevelt. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, in part. And also thank you to the ladies. I mean, yeah. I wrote a book about single ladies. Like, thank you to the women who didn't marry at the end of the 19th century and instead opened colleges for women, opened the women's colleges, opened the historically black colleges for women. You had this period at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century that saw this enormous expansion of opportunity for women who wanted to get educations of political opportunity for women culminating with, in 1920, the passage of the 19th Amendment that permitted women to vote. Although, of course, black women in, in southern states Invited, still could not exercise that vote. Permitted some women to vote. Right. Permitted some women to vote. And um, and then you have what was a massive backlash to that. Okay. And Women started dropping out of colleges to marry. The marital imperative, the early hetero marital imperative, especially for middle-class white women, who were the ones who had been the most threatening at the turn of the 20th century because they'd been the ones who weren't marrying, who weren't having kids the way that they had been in past generations, who'd been getting college degrees and in some cases medical and legal degrees. Those women were the closest to challenging white men for power. And there was a massive sort of multi-tentacled approach to get them back into early hetero marriages. And in the middle of the 20th century, the early hetero marriage and women's economic, social, and sexual dependence on that marriage as the institution that was going to contain and support them was tremendous. And Hillary Clinton was born in that era. My mother was also born in that era. Lots of our parents were born in that era. And the way that they felt about marriage is very different from the way that, for example, I feel about marriage. It is, it was, there, there were degrees of, I think, dependence and kind of reverence for and fetishization of the institution that were just bred into you. That I was going to use the word identity. Yes. Is I am a married person yes. as an identity. I'm a married woman. Sorry. I'm a married woman. As you're getting your MRS degree, the, one of the reasons why that's funny is because it doesn't have a husband attached to it. Right. right? Exactly. It's just, <laughs> right. It's just who you are is the married person. And and in 1960, Gail Collins writes about this. I think it's at Barnard. If you graduated one engaged, you got a rose at your graduation ceremony or a party at your graduation ceremony. And if you were single, you got a lemon. Okay. It was so something like 60% of, of 
female undergraduates are dropping out of the colleges that just a few decades ago had been open so that they could go to them, dropping out to get married by the middle of the 20th century. And that's the world in which Hillary Clinton gets married. And she is politicized, right? It matters that she keeps her name. It met for a while. It matters that she keeps her name in the 70s. It matters that she says no to marrying Bill several times, which happened. She turned him down three times. And there was tremendous pressure. She was such an anomalous person, even as a young person. The first undergraduate ever asked to give the commencement address at Wellesley. The, I mean, that, and, and she was, it was her classmates who pushed for it to happen. They viewed her as extraordinary in some way. Um, she gives the commencement address. She, she gets this law degree. There is, people move to, there, there are women who, who change their lives to, to mentor this young woman who, even when she was young, they thought might be the first president, woman president of the United States. That was thing that those were things people thought about Hillary Rodham before she married Bill Clinton, and many of them were very angry at her. There's an incredible story about the woman who drives across the country with her to drop her off in Arkansas. She's decided she's going to go marry Bill, who's going to run for office in Arkansas. And the woman, she actually just died at 100 this past year. The woman who was her mentor, who drove her cross country spent the whole car ride begging her to not do this. Do not throw away your future. Do not do this. And she did it. She made the choice to marry this guy. And I think that the trying to look back through a contemporary lens and say, why didn't she leave him? And that doesn't mean, like, we can all think she should have left him. She should have left him. But I don't think that we can imagine what it's like to be in the head. of Younger contemporary people can't quite imagine the mindsets around marriage. And we can also imagine the mindset about, just because we started talking about this, her framework for understanding the accusations against Bill. Right, right. Were they different? Just different. They're just different. And and you don't have the vocabulary. Remember again, it's 91 when sexual harassment, the very concept. I'm trying to, again, I want to just distinguish, like this is not excusing. Right, and I want to make that point too. It's just trying to contextualize. Thrive Market has all the top premium healthy and organic products that I usually get from a grocery store, but unlike your typical organic and non-GMO products that are marked up by premium prices, Thrive Market sells the same organic and non-GMO premium products at wholesale prices. How do they do that? Thrive Market cuts out all the middlemen and works directly with the brands, and then they pass the savings on to the members. And even better, for everyone who signs up, Thrive Market donates a membership to a low-income family, veteran, or teacher. So together, we are all making healthy living affordable for everyone. That's a company I'm honored to support. Thrive Market also makes it super easy to shop. Not only is it all online and shipped straight to your door, but every single product on their site is tagged by over 90 different values. So in one click, you can sort the entire catalog into categories like non-GMO, organic, vegan, gluten-free, paleo, sustainably farmed, and what have you. You can get $60 of free organic groceries and free shipping and a 30-day trial membership if you go to thrivemarket.com slash friends. That is $60 of organic groceries for free plus free shipping and a 30-day trial membership if you go to thrivemarket.com slash friends. Keep in mind that Thrive Market's prices are already 20 to 50% below retail because they cut out the middleman. And now they're offering $60 in free organic groceries and, as I said, free shipping. Go to thrivemarket.com slash friends. That's thrivemarket.com slash friends. Some of the conversations we have now, it's not just about sexual harassment. It's about things like prison reform, criminal justice reform. They don't totally track 
with even the sort of raised consciousness of a 1990s, right? I don't, you know, those are the other parts of the book that are kind of frustrating. Yes. <laughs> when she talks about, right. the, there's a, the chapter on the Mothers of the Movement where she just mm-hmm. conflates um, the Mothers of the Movement and Gabby Gifford's campaign. Yeah, and it's like she has no idea that she's doing a strange thing there. Mm-hmm. It's very, very odd. But she has no idea that she's just like, oh, gun violence. It's all gun violence. Right. This is a, <laughs> right. Well, this is— an, And there are connections, to be sure, toxic masculinity and the police, toxic masculinity that causes, you know, white guys to shoot up things. But they're different problems. Right. right. And I don't think—I mean, the, but the other thing that we forget, I forget, and I, I'm, I'm going to say this and I may be wrong about it. I don't think that we started talking about the prison industrial complex until the late 90s. Is that—I may be wrong. I may be saying something very wrong. I feel like I remember, you know, in my, again, super radical college days, uh, like the normal folks, the pro-marijuana legalization people were talking about something like the—I don't know if they used the words mass incarceration. Right. But they were talking about the way that drug laws were being used to lock up black right. people. Right, And so that's my understanding right. of like— But I think that's about when that conversation yeah. starts. And yeah, somebody, yeah. somebody should come and, and correct me on this because I'm just, you know, I have no idea. But I think Kat, it's the Kat, 90s. Kat, you should Google that for us I right think, now. <laughs> I, I think it's the— It is. I, it I is it's, it's not, not early. Mid- it's certainly not earlier than that. Right, right. It is in the 90s as—I don't th- I don't think it is. Okay. I don't think it I'm is, d- but I'm— well, we're going to wait for the Google, but I do remember that there was the conversation around marijuana legalization. Definitely, there was people marshalling evidence mm-hmm. about drug laws. Right, there was an argument about the crime bill. There yes. was an argument about the crime bill. Oh, and so, that's all another right. part of the book that's really frustrating because there was a very serious argument about it. It wasn't just like a compromise we had to make. Mm-hmm. There were people who like were like, you're going to wind up locking up lots right. of black people now. Right, right. And I wish that we could just argue about her policies. Mm-hmm. That's what I wish. That is my fondest hope. Right. And right. we don't, though. I also wish we could argue about her policies. But I also wish that she didn't, and this is not about, pre- it's not even necessarily about external pressure we put on her. It's about her choices, too, to defend her husband's policies. Because sometimes when I think about that 90s legislation, she didn't write the crime bill. But she, but she, but it's she funny, chooses she chooses to, to defend no, it. I she chooses agree. to own she it. She chose to write about welfare reform. Now, there are a that's lot on of the book people. T- that's in the book, too. There are a lot of people. And it's been in past <laughs> books. Look, in one of her past books, one of the things she does is she brags when it seemed like welfare reform, yeah. to her, had been a raging success. She, she Power of compromise. Sorry. That's like her big right, thing about it. Right. <laughs> she, in, a, in an earlier book, writes about how she'd rounded up votes for it. Now, contemporaneous reports say that she was actually pushing against welfare reform. But then there's a—while it, it was being right. debated, and the Edelmans, her mentor, Marion Wright Edelman, and, and her husband, Peter Edelman, quit the Clinton administration during welfare reform because they understand In protest. what a disaster it's going to yeah. be. Um, and Hillary is—like, t- she, at that point, knows that argument, and her the people she is most professionally and, and ideologically aligned with are making the opposing argument. And there are lots of people who claim that she was pushing against it within the White House. But then the creature that she is, right, the political creature that she is, when it seems like maybe welfare reform was well-received, she then retroactively, in an earlier book, even goes goes and says, oh, well, I was rounding up votes for it. I'm not sure that was true, that she was rounding up votes for it. Or, or it, maybe it was, but there's a sort of public... This is how we got to part of how she wound up, again, sort of handed the bill for a lot of legislation that her husband 
and Joe Biden, who during the election was a sitting vice president and hadn't had to answer for a lot of this, including having chaired the Senate Judiciary for Anita Hill, including having written the crime bill, including having voted for welfare reform. How even Bernie Sanders, who voted for the he, crime bill. Though he's been more public about saying that, Explaining why and being— And regretting it. Right, and, and regretting it. Absolutely. But— a lot of it landed on Hillary. And I'm not exactly saying it's unfair because she did seek it out. She's fought those battles since they've happened. But she was also the person who wasn't in elected office, who wasn't actually crafting the legislation and creating the mechanisms that were going to imprison more black people. Right. Although it's funny because one of the other things about her book uh, that I did just finish, which is why it's like just right. top and of I, my And mind, I haven't read it in a couple months. Whenever it came out, I read it. Um, is she comes out in favor of the system. Like yes. that is like she's she is a, a well, fan she, of the system. She's of, an institutionalist. She is. She is a. She is. Oh boy, howdy! Mm-hmm. Is she an institutionalist? She is not a revolutionary. Which is actually why she's weird. Like her Wellesley speech is actually very revolutionary, very radical, and and talks about how we we shouldn't be slaves to corporate interests and right. I don't know what happened, but— But I think, no, I think that Wellesley speech is about changing from within, too. Agitating right. from within the system. It's not about blowing up the system. And I— and I, You're right. It's about— She we says something change. about we shouldn't let corporations, like, uh, enslave us. I don't know if she used the word enslave, but there, there's an anti-corporatist bent to a couple of the lines in yes. there that struck me, given— Mm-hmm. who she is. But you're right. It isn't about throwing off the chains. Right. It's it's about how we resist internally mm-hmm. and how we make small incremental changes. But yeah, she's an incrementalist. She's an institutionalist. Mm-hmm. And she believes that these systems will steer us in the best direction. And now we have different language and different ideas about that that allow us to be suspect of the system itself. Right. Like we, you know, in having gone through more philosophical debates than she has actively participated in, um, now see the problem with saying you need to work in the system. Like we're like, oh, well, if you if you work within that system, you're going to get the same results. Right. So you need to rethink the system itself. And right. she's like, no, the system, the system she, is the system. Right. The system is 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 good. Right. So <laughs> she, she does. She believes. There's actually like a part in the book where she talks about like how she fell in love with basic like the system. How yeah. like working for the Children's Defense Fund. She's like, and you you wrote papers and you got witnesses and you you made laws. <laughs> and I'm like, do you understand why the Black Lives Matter people don't trust you? <laughs> like, this is why they don't trust you. Right. And and also she that scene. There's a scene in the book that breaks one's heart because she's talking to Black Lives Matter people and she's like, you need to work within the oh, system. I know. That, well, that's what I, you've seen that that's the thing there's the video of. Do you yeah, remember? That's right, I that's mean, right. that's, I remember watching that conversation and being like, oh, I mean, and, oh, and it, no, this is who she is, Hillary. It's who she is. And it's Always just, and, 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 and she is in a weird way, like, right, all the ironies here, she is in a weird way very conservative. She's absolutely, she's a temperamentally conservative person. Yes. And doesn't like change. That probably also, if we're going to do pop psychology, armchair psychology about her, another reason why she didn't leave Bill. And just pure, I don't want to do that because that is a big change that I do not feel good about making. Yeah, she's very, I, would, I, mean, I don't know if I would say she doesn't like change, but I think she's very slow to change. Like, I, you know, I actually I, think, I won't put in a like or don't like. I think she's temperamentally right. conservative. I agree. And she needs to have good reasons to change. 
right make changes in her life make changes right. in her ideas, ideas and right i think that i think that that is probably very fair and i don't know you know the reasons why she didn't leave bill man i don't know they could do a whole separate podcast do a series god i really appreciate you coming in in part because the reason why i wanted to do a special episode about hillary um is that i do have such trouble knowing what my own feelings are mm. about her because I don't feel fervent, you know, admiration, mm-hmm. but I also very clearly see the sexism mm-hmm. that uh, is used against her. And I also know that my own brain, let's talk about systems, I know that I, the lenses that I see through have been shaped by patriarchy. All of ours have. So I don't quite trust my own opinion about her as a person. Right. You know, I know enough about myself to be like, the fact that I, she turns me off in some weird right. way right. may be because I'm internalized right. some shit. This is like how I like would hide under the couch when she spoke too loudly into a microphone, even though I knew perfectly well that like it was about a register of a certain kind of voice that I was reacting to. I'm like, the I'm the feminist writer who covers Hillary Clinton. I get the thing about women's loud voices versus men's loud voices. And yet I was like, stop talking into the microphone. So... Okay, yes. And here's my—I mean, look, I've written about her now for more than a decade. I've thought so much about her. I've now, post-election, actually spent a fair amount of time with her, which which was not true up until 2016. I did—you know, and then I did one profile of her during the election and then one lengthy one in this post-election year where I wound up spending a good deal of time with her. Um, And here's the thing with me. I have tremendous admiration— her, just tremendous admiration for her. That doesn't mean that I don't share probably many of your qualms. The way that I think about that, though, is I try to compare it to how I feel about other politicians or leaders, many of whom I have like a whole variety of like warm feelings, admiration, respect, but about almost all of them, I also have serious qualms or things that I don't like about their past records or about their approach or their strategy or what they're willing to do to, to win. Like I actually, that's like a totally normal set of feelings. That's how one, that, what I was about to say is like, that's how one feels about politicians. But of course the adjective missing there is that is how one feels about male Right, well, politi- right. And we don't need that adjective historically because most of them have been men, right? And so it's not like, for example, like John Kerry, n- not one of my favorite politicians. I voted for him with a song in my heart and like my middle finger raised at George Bush. You're like, a better person than I, I am. I was actually not excited about voting for him. But right. you know, well, I, no, I was excited about <laughs> voting oh for him. I voted, um, I voted for Nader. That's why. Because I lived in oh, D.C. God, right. I lived in D.C. I lived in D.C. where my it's going to go like 90 percent Kerry right. anyway. Right. And again, like my punk rock history, little reactionary. Like, right. No, I, no, no. This yeah. is. Right. Anyway. And my my politics were so to the left of John Kerry. My politics have been to the left of literally everybody I think I've ever voted for. Right? And and so about all of them, I have felt major qualms. I did not like John Kerry. I thought he made so many errors. I thought he had so many flaws. But that did not differentiate him, in my mind, not only from, like— Michael Dukakis or Bill Clinton or other people I'd voted for. It also didn't differentiate him in my mind from Franklin Roosevelt, a man for whom I have tremendous admiration, or, you know, from any number of 
past progressive heroes, who Ted Kennedy, like who I also understand not just personal stuff, but like Franklin Roosevelt imprisoned the Japanese and he is it's one a of, strike against it, him. It's a strike against him, right? It is not incompatible in my mind that I might and and the New Deal policies who he put forth badly damaged people of color in this country. Like and I know those things and I still admire and if I think about economic policy that I want the left in this country to aspire to, I still think of the New Deal. I still think of Franklin Roosevelt. It is not incompatible for me to to deeply admire Franklin Roosevelt and also to feel that he made errors which like to say their flaws is to is to under uh, examine exactly how how bad these things were, right? So to me, the idea that I might simultaneously tremendously admire Hillary for all kinds of reasons and be critical of her is doesn't differentiate my feelings about her in my mind to how I feel about lots of other politicians, who I many of whom I admire less, but you know, nonetheless have never sat around and talked about their flaws as much as I sit around and talk about Hillary's flaws, you know? But in this, and that's helpful because I guess I can say, I can revise and extend my remarks, which is to say that I do admire things about her. Mm-hmm. Um I see that. And like the book in one of the ways it's infuriating is it does remind one of all of the things that she is good at. Right. And one of them is making an argument. The argument is, I've joked, I wrote a little, I wrote a blurb for about the book for Signs, the oh, feminist journal. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. I'm familiar with Signs. I have done that myself. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and I said it, it should be called What Should Have Happened mm-hmm. because it's basically another argument for her as president. And it's a great argument. Right. Well, she would have been a good president. Here's she, my, my right, view. Right, is right, that, right. So I went, yeah. what I want to say is like, so one of the reasons why the book is infuriating though is because I'm like, yes, you are correct. <laughs> you, Hillary Clinton are correct. You would have been a great president. Um, but at the same time, like I do have all these mixed feelings, but I, so, but part of me wants to say that in your, in your argument, I think, or your, what you're talking about is like, we let these two, two kinds of feelings about other politicians exist without debating them. Yeah. Without, I don't know like, whether- we don't, we don't, we don't like, Oh God, FDR is so problematic. We don't have a national discussion about FDR. Maybe we should, but we don't have a right. national we don't discussion. Even, we don't have it about Joe Biden. Like right. we don't have, you know, although maybe we should, well, maybe yeah. I don't know where I come out. Like, should we take everybody apart the way we take apart okay. Hillary Clinton or should we get over it and, and get behind somebody? I don't know. I'm actually not, I don't know okay. where I stand on that. All right. Um, and and so I, I I understand what you're saying, and then that's I think that it's going to help me just personally in the future. Oh, good, I'm glad um, to, to be just be like you know what my feelings are complicated, yes. and just live with that. Um, but there's a part of me that also feels like I appreciate a lot that has come out of some of these conversations that we've had about her. Mm. That she has been the catalyst for conversations that maybe we should have been having all along. That she is a historic figure in ways that she probably cannot quite comprehend. And that we may not even in our lifetimes. But I suspect, I mean, my suspicion, if we survive, and honestly, there are (laughs) a lot, and I'm I'm sort of not joking. No, no. If we survive as a democracy, my suspicion is that, A, this is all going to look really different in about 75 years. Um, but and, her email, right? And that B, I suspect that if we do do the kind of change we need to do as far as getting something closer to a representative democracy, Hillary Clinton is going to be understood 
And this is not to make her, this is not to lionize her or whitewash her or anything like that. But I think the role she's played, she has absorbed so much of the shit that the first woman president was going to absorb. And it's a shock, by the way, that it was her to begin with and not like Margaret Thatcher American, right? Like it's it's an amazing thing that this was not Liddy Dole. It's amazing that this was not a conservative, comfortable Republican. And our first woman president may indeed be Nikki Haley, right? So, I mean, that is what I always assumed. If, yeah. you'd, if you'd asked me in high if school- If you'd asked me when I was holding that Anita, high, Anita Hill sign, I probably would have told you it was going to be Liddy Dole. Right, right. And it was always, I thought it was always going to be a conservative Republican, you know. Um, so it's shocking that it was Hillary Clinton to begin with. Um, and I think she's done a lot of the work of being the first woman president. The sad thing is the thing she would have actually been good at was the job of being president. I mean, we would have, we would have been sitting here complaining about what she was not doing right, right economic now. economic policies, but great, like whatever, like, yeah. Oh, I would have loved to have been sitting yes, here having right, that yeah, conversation. Totally, right. totally. But, but in fact, the actual doing the job, yeah, she, she would have been, been great. She would have been great. She yeah. was terrible at getting the job. <laughs> she's a terrible candidate, period. Right. And But she's always been a good, uh, she's been a terrible job candidate and excellent at the job. Excellent I mean, I don't know, maybe she was a good job candidate person. as a lawyer and stuff too. Right. But right. She, anyway, I but, understand what you're saying. But um, I think, so the, the grim irony is we didn't even get the good part, which is her actually being the president. But I think she will have done a lot of the work of clearing some of the hurdles for whoever does become the first woman president. And I think it's possible and, you know, coming right after this past election day, and I don't want to get like over dramatic about it because there's a fuckload still to do. We, we've learned our lesson. <laughs> right. But a little bit about well, predicting from, from we've learned our lesson. There's no predictions, but let's just look at Tuesday. Right. And what you see, and it's the, the, the comparative moment is again, Anita Hill in 92. What you see is a lot of women and people of color and people who are angry about power imbalances that were made non visible. non binary people. Right. And a lot of people who were angered by power Im imbalances that 2016 made so visible to us, responding by not just yelling, but like presenting themselves as the power alternative. And in, on Tuesday, many of them winning and actually shifting power. And if that happens. And I don't, I'm not looking to say like 2018, it's all ladies. Like, I'm not saying that. I don't think it's going to be that simple or that quick, but I think you've, you knew you were reading about the numbers of women who have expressed interest in running for office. And that also brings us back to the sexual harassment conversation where we started, which is the only way to actually change this shit is to revise the power structures that until now have been so suffocatingly white and male. And so if all of this that's happening now, all of this, Trump and the harassment and the abuse and the predation and the election and Hillary, if what it gets us to, not next week, not 2018, but as a long-term investment, is a revision of that power structure in which we look more like the rep representative democracy we imagine ourselves to be, I think we will look back and see Hillary Clinton and her candidacy as absolutely instrumental to that revision and that shift, which is ideally what those of us who want to make the country better are aiming for. And that is it for the show. It has been quite a week. Um, I believe this is the first week I've closed the show without uh, wondering how I'm going to get through the weekend. Uh, there was some very good news this week. 
And I want everyone to remember that. I also want everyone, if you are listening now, you are a super fan. You qualify as a super fan. So please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review us. It helps other people find the show and it um, boosts my ego because it gets us up in the rankings. It makes me feel less, less than. If you want to be in touch with the pod, you can follow us on Twitter at Crooked underscore friends. And next week, we probably will get back to answering listener questions. So please, if you have a question that has to do with relationships and politics or politics and relationships, please send it to us at withfriendslikepod at gmail. And if you want to include an audio version of the question, that would be great. But if you don't, that is also fine. And that is it for the show. Please have a good weekend. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 